The year is 1966. I'm Dave. I'm Zach. And this is My Marvelous Year. Our comic reading club. I'm Zach, your comic book newbie, and along with Dave, the idol of millions, we'll be covering all the essential Marvel stories from its origins to today. Today we'll be talking about the first part of 1966. Yeah, this is an exciting year in in comics, frankly, but definitely in Marvel comics. I think we've been. I I think honestly, I was thinking about it. I think every year that we've covered so far like the comics have gotten better each year oh for sure yeah <laughs> i think 66 so i actually just did this on on comic Herald where i write is rank you know all my favorite years by decade of marvel publication mm-hmm. and <laughs> just just for kicks <laughs> right just a normal thing that somebody does in their spare time yeah. <laughs> and uh and for the 60s i definitely marked 1966 so this is the year where i think marvel comics are at their absolute best doesn't mean i don't like the rest of the 60s but i think they stop like just straight escalating at this point but that means we're in for some really really good stuff this year so let's um before i get into the 66 comics i do just want to call out right up front thanks for everybody listening if you uh, are able to rate and review my marvelous year on itunes or your podcast player of choice that will go a long way to supporting the show and mm-hmm. we appreciate all the feedback we get as we try to to improve this thing and of course you know we're planning to cover you know all of marvel history right we're going through every year at our pace here um of you know covering a selection of stories each week you know we're going to make it through the 2000s so as we do yeah. so we got a long road ahead and we're looking to bring in new listeners at every juncture we'll take like a moment to reflect on the 60s once we finish the decade but then as we get into the 70s we want to bring even more people in right maybe some people are like yeah bronze age that's my jam so let's um let's keep this thing going and you know tell a friend if you can and and help us out because we greatly appreciate it yeah yeah definitely yeah it's i mean it's also just like the more people doing this the more fun this is hearing all kinds of perspectives yeah and just and just to jump off that real quick like the the conversation in the community that we have um if you want to join the my marvelous year club and you want the exclusive slack channel that we've got set up go over to patreon.com slash my marvelous year and you'll see ways that um for by supporting the show that you can join and honestly i it's it's not it's kind of unlike anything else out there um it's you know, this Slack channel of everybody doing the club and reading along and talking about the comics and, and not just talking about like the sixties comics, you know, it's just comic book fans talking, talking MCU or talking DC comics sometimes. Right. It's starting to like branch out into like, now we just have a a music channel. People just, you know, sharing their favorite music, talk, people talking about their book, favorite books. Like now it's just turning into like the, the comic community that started is now just turning into its own little thing, which is, which is really fun to see. Yeah. I I love seeing that. I think it's so cool. Um, I, I'm definitely somebody who grew up with not 
it just not a lot of people who knew comics <laughs> to talk yeah. about. So it's fun for me with having Comic Book Herald to find all these people who are like, yeah, I want to talk comics with you. <laughs> you. You didn't have those people growing up, so you formed your own comic book website to to bring them to you. <laughs> so I forced them to come to me. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so Amazing Spider-Man number 31 is the first comic that we're going to talk about. Now, this one technically came out in December 1965, as mm-hmm. Zach has pointed out to me. Um, it, it we're getting at that point where <laughs> that makes me sound like a real jerk. Like before the before the recording, I was well, chastising you for. Yeah, that's right. Yes, yeah, so you scolded <laughs> yeah. me. Um, these uh, these story arcs are starting to blend together a little more. So I'm going to yeah. be a little less strict with like what, specifically what year it came out in, and more mm-hmm. just making sure we're reading them together. So Amazing Spider-Man yeah. number 31 kicks off a three-part story. Zach, take it away. Yeah, this one's called If This Be My Destiny. Um, so this one starts out, there's a bunch of looking like generic-looking henchmen in these purple outfits, and they're stealing stuff from a radioactive uh, manufacturing plant. Spider-Man comes in and starts fighting them as they escape on a helicopter. This is a really good fight. Like, Steve Ditko is getting really good at pacing out interesting, fun easy to read fight scenes that like move move right along like it yeah th- this is this is really primo spider-man stuff and i do i have to call out right off the bat we're mm-hmm. at the point in marvel history where stan lee and steve ditko working together writing amazing spider-man were not speaking to each other oh yeah right it right. is remarkable <laughs> when you look back at how good the comics are and at the completely fractured relationship um steve dicko i think the the you know history goes had taken issue with a lot of stan's practices some of his plot points maybe changing things that steve had done in the art and uh they literally did not speak steve dicko would come drop off his pages stan would fill in the dialogue so i think this is where when people are trying to give dicko a lot more credit for spider-man definitely this time period i mean he's just Mm -hmm. like (laughs) he's taking the ball and going home and, and everything that happens is pretty much him plotting it out, you know? Yeah, wasn't he given, f- like, full free reign of one of these issues coming up? I, a handful. Um, He writes the dialogue in one that we may have even covered, and I'm blanking on it off the top of my head, but it's very... Steve Dicko is a big proponent of the philosophy of Ayn Rand, um, the novelist, writer of, yeah, yeah, Fountainhead, um, and uh, what's the big one? Atlas Shrugged. And so you get you get an issue of Dicko's dialogue, actually, where Peter Parker sounds a little Randian. And I think to most <laughs> of us, he sounds like a bit of a creep, <laughs> like it doesn't yeah. play super great. But yeah, no, it's it's an interesting call out. There's a really good YouTube channel called Comic Tropes, and he has a great video called Why Steve Ditko Quit that kind of gives an overview of Steve Ditko's politics and this time and, and the basically what's known about their working relationship at this time and what's not, what's speculation. So, um, yeah, I would definitely go check that out. That's a, that's a really interesting episode on YouTube uh, about that, comic tropes. Yeah, so uh, Spider-Man's fighting these these purple purple robbers on this helicopter, and they, they try to gas him with some sleeping gas, which will be a reoccurring thing for Spider-Man, getting a, a face full of sleeping gas. They throw their loot out of the helicopter, and Spider-Man brings the helicopter down in the water. (laughs) He, like, binds, he rips a piece off the helicopter and throws it into the rotors. It crashes in the water, but then when Spider-Man dives in to save the guys, because he doesn't want them to drown, they're all gone, uh, as well as the loot. And we cut to, the. there's another team 
of these thieves who have scuba dived in and taken the loot and all disappeared like they were planning for this we get a scene of a a shadowy figure uh, at a distance called the master planner (laughs) who has planned this whole thing out to uh the nth degree and this kind of makes me think this made me think the first time of like um the mad thinker you know or maybe like uh who are the crime bosses we just dealt with um big big man and the crime master I kept wanting to say Big Daddy, and I blame you for that entirely. Um, <laughs> Big Man. Stanley. No, totally. It sounds like another kind of tossed off, like, ah, oh, Big Man. Like, a, kind of a character you're not going to care about as much. And um, I do I do have to credit here the Spectacular Spider-Man animated series, mm-hmm. all-time favorite of mine, for making mm-hmm. the Master Planner, like, so cool in my mind. All right. um, so okay. this comic is where it draws inspiration from. But if you're looking for, like, the coolest the Master Planner's ever been, Check out Spectacular Spider-Man. Yeah, because basically th- this issue is just going to show, like, in the background, the master planner weaves his web. And then the next issue, it's just going to say, like, and it was this guy. Ta-da! And it doesn't mean anything. So so back in Peter Parker land, it's registration day for his first his, his first day at college. And he heads off to college. He's all excited to register for new classes. There's this fun montage of him going through, like, university bureaucracy. Aunt May, meanwhile, is, like, happy for him, but says, basically, she doesn't have the heart to tell Peter that she's sick and uh, she doesn't want to ruin his college experience. But then Peter Parker just (laughs) comes home and she collapses and needs to get taken away in an ambulance and the doctors don't know what's wrong with her. So he spends his first few days on campus totally distracted and, like, with his head elsewhere because he's you know so uh twisted in a knot over what's happening with aunt may and i do think this is something that and i'm just going to credit them together because i don't know where the credit goes that lee and dicko do extremely well is like is painting a picture of social failure they make it excruciating and infuriating to watch like these newcomers harry osborne gwen stacy um combined with flash thompson like trying to incorporate peter parker trying to be friendly and he just their reactions to him giving them what is perceived as the cold shoulder um is maddening but they're really good at creating that drama and not making it easy yeah well okay so let's introduce flash thompson still on campus because he's he's going to be one of the main like college cohorts here for peter parker um we get introduced to harry osborne who he comes across as kind of a little bit of a snob kind of uh, I feel like he's, he's got a, a little bit of a temper. He's way more in Flash's camp as well. Like, they get along pretty quickly. Yeah, and he's he's having none of, like, Peter Parker's, uh, like, I don't know, Peter Parker's being kind of icy, <laughs> or seemingly icy, and Harry Osborn's real mad about it. Let's talk about Harry Osborn's hair. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Let's. Okay, so Harry Osborn has cornrows, mm-hmm. but they run sideways. Yep. yep. <laughs> left to right across his head. They're bright red, and they also he also has a like a sharp pointed widow's peak that yeah. these cornrows run into. It is baffling, baffling. Yeah. Like what is happening with his hair? It's not just like I don't know, like an artistic, a stylistic choice because no one else looks like this. No one else has hair like this. The Osborne hairline and hairstyle is one of the greatest mysteries in in all of marvel comics like it it defies i can accept 
that a man can go to another dimension and fight <laughs> and fight mindless ones. But that hair... You'll believe a man can fly, but you won't believe <laughs> that, that, that hair is physically possible. It's bonkers, yeah. God, someone must have done that at some point. Someone with red hair must have like given themselves sideways cornrows like <laughs> to cosplay this. I, I have to look that up. I like the idea that Dick Hill wanted regular cornrows and Lee flipped it just to mess with him. <laughs> it's, yeah. I, and... The thing is, like, it persists to this day. Like, well, I don't know to this day, but it persists in the modern Spider-Man that the Osborns still have this. And no. it's like, I I've, maybe people just decided, well, that's what he always had. We got to stick with it. it. I don't know. Anyway, uh, so he's there. Gwen Stacy is introduced as well. And she is very pretty, like supermodel pretty. And she's kind of this blonde bombshell who is like is kind of captivated by Peter Parker initially. She says he's not as husky as Flash, but he's definitely more intelligent. And it, it's kind of funny because she kind of tries to talk to him and make friends with him. And Peter Parker is like barely, barely notices her, doesn't even glance at her. And it's clear that this is not something she's used to, like being ignored by boys, which is kind of fun because she's mad, but she also is that much more determined to get his attention. <laughs> um, a good Gwen Stacy line that... Uh, means something very different in modern day. Peter Parker's the only boy I've met who hasn't given me a tumble. <laughs> I, what? What could that? What did that mean then? I, I mean, I assume attention. Like that, yeah. that's how it comes across. Is like not your best, Dan. Not your best. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So Peter Parker is like, he's all he's distracted. He's worried. He he needs money for May's medical bills. Uh, he's already thinking about quitting college because he could work full time and. But then Aunt May would be really disappointed in him. He's he's up all night trying to take pictures to make some money, which means that he can't study for classes and he's not finding any nothing's happening. <laughs> there's there's no crime for him to stop, no good pictures for him to get. And this is like this is the Spider-Man I love. I love just like th- that real tension between his Spider-Man life and his Peter Parker life in the way that like his personal life is ruined <laughs> by Spider-Man and that need to be Spider-Man, right? Like he need he has the responsibility of being Spider-Man, but it's also just like it's making his personal life so difficult. And I think that's so interesting and something that doesn't really get, I don't know, explored that much with other superheroes. Well, I think that's why these three issues work well together yeah. is this issue. There's no supervillain and there's barely any Daily Bugle. Like it's, it's pretty oh, yeah. atypical. It is mostly... Peter at college and his home life. Um, and yeah, that is a nice, it is a nice pacing uh, setup for the rest of the story. So uh, Peter Parker does go to the Daily Bugle to try to sell some photos, but they're no good. Uh, JJJ won't buy them. This shows that Betty Brant is getting, there's another guy, a reporter at the Daily Bugle, Ned Leeds, who's been around for a bit and he's really interested in Betty as well. He's already proposed to Betty and she's basically like, Oh, I don't have an answer for you because my heart still somewhat belongs to Peter Parker and I, I can't decide. Ned is remarkably patient to, to sit and yeah. wait and be like, I'll oh, figure out how you feel about that other guy. I'll wait. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and that, that, will, that will come up in the future. Peter Parker's kind of giving her the cold shoulder as well. We, we also get a scene of the doctors, Aunt May's doctors, saying that she doesn't have much time left. Do, do the test again. Okay, but it will have the same result. This woman doesn't have much time. That's the big cliffhanger at the end of this, which again, like the cliffhanger of our superhero's aunt <laughs> being sick in the hospital is just so different from anything happening in Fantastic Four or the Hulk or, you know, whatever else. Like, Yeah. So that takes us into Amazing Spider-Man number 32. This is Lee Dicko and Artie Smek. 
Um, the, the issue pretty quickly dismisses with the mystery of the Master Planner and reveals in the undersea base that it is, in fact, Dr. Octopus. Returned uh, in a very Bondian turn where he's got this undersea base and all of his purple henchmen running around and committing thefts. Um, essentially, Ock's plan here seems to be uh, to steal basically as much radioactive material and instruments as he can get his hands on to become the foremost dominant weaponizer of radioactive material. Yeah. He, Dr. Octopus has never looked more like my grandmother. <laughs> like, his sunglasses, or sunglasses, his goggles look like, I don't know, every, every like grandmother retired in Florida. <laughs> right now they're really ridiculous yeah that's yeah, very it's very funny yeah so we cut away to uh back to the daily bugle again we have this ned Leeds waiting on betty to make up her mind peter parker at this point you know he's he's trying to call things off with betty but rather than just tell her that he can't be with her because um she hates spider-man and he is spider-man he mm-hmm. gives her the cold shoulder uh he's he's really just a jerk to her like he's actively trying. Yeah, he's trying to like drive her away like he's trying to make it so that like she doesn't like him anymore and that will hurt her less because he doesn't want to let her down so he'd rather have her think that he's just a jerk and why would she want to be with him anyway yeah so like he's trying to get her to move on she won't really buy it because she's yeah, like this right. isn't this clearly isn't you and i was i was trying to imagine like take somebody who's pretty milk toast or pretty pretty generally pleasant person and then all yeah. of a sudden they start putting on a front like they're a, a huge jerk like it would yeah. seem pretty strange you'd be like why yeah. are you acting so weird yeah and i really like i really like the way this plays out in the next issue too so we'll get mm-hmm. to that yeah so uh after that point we get peter with the doctors um around aunt may in the hospital and they tell pete that it's the radioactivity in her bloodstream causing her ailment so this really ties in to uh, the guilt that Peter Parker feels and will continue to feel. Obviously, his whole deal as Spider-Man right now is he's guilty over the death of Uncle Ben and his role in that. Now there's the implication that because of a blood transfusion that he you know, gave to Aunt May, um, that, that he's causing her death through the radioactivity mm-hmm. in his own bloodstream. And this, like, there, there's just these montages of Peter Parker who's just like panicking and frantic. Steve Ditko's layout does so much to like to lean into that like his layout is really i don't know it, it, it's all over the place and it, it it just does a good job of suggesting that through the the artwork itself rather than just the text yeah no you definitely get a real sense here i think that aunt may's in actual peril like it doesn't mm-hmm. feel like yeah. she's definitely going to come out of this one um yeah. even though she often does so spider-man or peter parker as spider-man tracks down kurt connors aka the lizard who i haven't seen for mm-hmm. quite some time um, and he knows that as a scientist, and because he helped Connors, maybe he can help uh, come up with a cure to fix the radioactivity in Aunt May's bloodstream. So Peter pawns off all of his science stuff to get the money to try and yeah. fund this cure. And then when, when he goes to Kirk Connors, he Kirk Connors is like, all right, yeah, let's start working on it. He brings a sample of Aunt May's blood to him. Mm-hmm. And Spider-Man, like immediately rolls up his sleeves and just starts pouring test tubes into one another and like decanting. <laughs> chemicals in kirk connor's lab which like as someone who works in a science lab themselves gave me like such anxiety of someone just like walking in and just starting like (laughs) pouring liquids like mixing things and like (laughs) well dr connor's does call out like hey you look pretty comfortable over there (laughs) spider-man and he's like oh yeah don't worry i do this all the time yeah 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 as if like 
just any any science work is interchangeable. Yeah, right. So they're they're coming up with this idea to um, Doctor Connors basically says, "All right, I know this isotope, it's ISO thirty six, and it's going to be delivered from the West Coast. We're going to do a rush speed order with this money you got." And mm-hmm. of course, Doctor Octopus and his men learn of this delivery of this rare radioactive material, and yeah. uh, Oxmen hijack the ISO 36 delivery for his own radiation experiments. <laughs> it sounded like you just said Oxmen, which is like, the that Oxmen. also sounds like a really good, uh, yeah, yeah, superhero team. Yeah. <laughs> so Spidey, of course, is mad that these men hijacked the material he needs to save Aunt May. This this is so good. The, the, the title of this issue is Man on a Rampage. Mm-hmm. And this is where that comes into play because he's furious that this, this has been stolen. And this rampage he goes on so cool yeah it is really nice he goes and he doesn't know where they are to track them down so he goes and just (laughs) smashes up gang hideouts and kind of known criminal uh you know stations and he's just tearing through and you get a lot of nice um dialogue from the criminals and you know gangsters in this basically saying like i've never seen him like this he looks Mm -hmm. like a man you know like you said a man on a rampage He, he goes into a garage where a bunch of criminals are hanging out and he just like walks over and flips their car And just picks it up and throws it across the garage. And then he rips a staircase out of the wall with, like, a bunch of criminals on it. Yeah. It's it's very cool. Like, I mean, it just shows, like, Angry Spider-Man is not someone you want to mess with. Yeah, you don't get Angry Spidey a ton. But this is a nice yeah. use of it. And so through all of this, he eventually is able to get some answers. He tracks down the Master Planner's base, uh, you know, undersea. I, I think he finds, like, a hidden staircase that leads down to it, basically. Yeah, from yeah something somewhere. Like and, um... Dr. Octopus knows he's coming. He uses the ISO 36 as bait, essentially. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Spider-Man walks up, tries to get it, and uh, and this leads to our Dr. Octopus-Spider-Man fight, which plays out quite differently than what we've seen because Spider-Man's fighting mad, and Dr. Octopus is scared. <laughs> he is not prepared. It's very qu- very quickly shown that Dr. Octopus is... I keep calling him Dr. Octopus. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> that's like the, my slight new england accent coming out <laughs> um dr octopus uh is like can't fight him and knows it immediately like yeah. realizes that he's uh he, he's no match for him and tries to tries to retreat yeah whereas they've been pretty evenly matched in the past so rather than stay and fight Oc kind of you know plans to bail um he as he's doing this you know spider-man's tearing things out of the walls the base starts collapsing and the issue ends with Ock runs away and Spider-Man winds up trapped and exhausted, basically under the weight of of all this machinery and metal in the base. And you also have now the walls are starting to burst in this undersea base and the place is going to flood uh, in the in the relative near future. And the ISO is just out of Spider-Man's reach uh, as the issue ends. Man, so good. <laughs> yeah, I just have in my notes. This issue was thrilling. <laughs> <laughs> right. I was I was so wrapped up in this. Like this, these three issues are are definitely the, my favorite. Uh, anything we've read so far, I was like so into this. <laughs> Amazing Spider-Man number thirty-three. It's called the final chapter, which again, like really building that up, and it's got that classic shot of Spider-Man trapped under this machinery with water pouring down over him. Really cool. Um, and the thing is, like. I mean, what's cool about that and why that shot is so iconic is not necessarily even because the shot itself is so good or laid out that well. Like, it's a good shot. It's just because this upcoming scene is so potent that it, like, it lends this power to that shot. I think anyone who's read this is now, like, that that 
that one shot means like so much because of that. I do like to Spider-Man's body language is defeated as mm-hmm. opposed to triumphant, you know, so it, it mm-hmm. genuinely looks like he is not only trapped, but he is like emotionally <laughs> devastated. Mm-hmm. Right. I, uh, I get my next note on this is it's hard to write notes when you're swept up in the story because I just found myself like a third of the way through the comic and I hadn't written a single note. Like, <laughs> I had <laughs> to go back and like, yeah. start writing notes. I was getting way into it. So th- there's just this long series of panels where like he tries to lift this stuff off of him and he can't and the water's pouring down. And I don't know. I don't know how to convey like that they just sell this desperation and this like defeat basically and he just needs to fight over it he, he's on the verge of blacking out lifting this this enormous thing like it's just just out of his like reach to be able to to do this yeah i mean it's it's four pages of spider-man summoning the courage and the will to do the impossible and right. it's it's extremely effective i the one element that i really like of it that that comes out in the earlier parts is spider-man has a chance to save aunt may like he didn't do for uncle ben and mm-hmm. this is a kind of a recurring idea that I really like, um, but just like the idea that he can, he can't fix what the past, you know, he can't change what has been done, but he can do something now to make yeah. sure he can do everything in his power to make sure that it doesn't happen again to someone he loves. And I love that sort of perseverance that Spider-Man really um, personifies. Yeah, yeah. He eventually lifts lifts the stuff off of himself and kind of casts it aside. Um Injuring his leg in the process, right? Is that here? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Injuring his leg in the process. This, uh, if you've seen Spider-Man Homecoming, that has that really good scene too. That yeah. is like clearly influenced by this of, uh, of Spider-Man and that getting trapped under a bunch of stuff and feeling helpless and like totally terrified. And I, I actually went back to YouTube to watch that to compare. And yeah, that, that like really captures that as well. That's one of the best scenes from that movie. It definitely got me super excited about Homecoming in that moment because any... It, Spider-Man lifting an impossibly heavy thing off of himself is like, it's kind of a trope because of this scene and because it's so good. Um, and it's, it's kind of a weird thing to try to articulate like why it's so effective because I don't know, throw like, uh, you know, throw other heroes into this, throw Iron Man, Superman lifting a big thing. Yeah. It's like, it doesn't really work, but for Spider-Man, because we know it's challenging, to yeah. the to the nth degree you know it just it really works and i think it's just the way stan characterizes it too like you said in the mcu like there's a fear there's a genuine like i don't know if i can do this and mm-hmm. and he overcomes it yeah yeah it's great so he grabs the iso he swims down this tunnel the whole thing collapses and fills with water and he's swept down this tunnel he's like his leg is aching him he's ex- completely exhausted he's holding his breath and eventually he like pops out of the water there's a bunch of henchmen there, which is just, it's so good. Like, he's already had so much. He's already just, like, at the end of his rope. And now there's a bunch of guys there waiting to, like, beat him up. And he basically doesn't have the strength to fight them off at all. So he, he kind of just goes limp and lets them beat on him. And he absorbs their blows basically to regain his strength. To rest. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he, he, like, rests through being punched a bunch. Because, you know, they're just a bunch of normal guys punching him. It's not the worst thing for Spider-Man. kind of rope-a-dope. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. So, like, he does that, and then eventually he just starts wailing on them. And he, he like, looks up at some point, like, ready to keep fighting. And he realizes that he's, like, deliriously, like, 
knock them all out. They're all unconscious and he didn't even realize it. Like he still thinks there's more to come. I really like that transition because I think it's I think it's the panels kind of zoom in on his face so you don't really see him hitting guys. And right. then it cuts yeah. away and he's just swinging his arms and there's no one there. <laughs> you know, like he finally made it out. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It really captures that he's he's completely checked out of this. Like we're not checked out that he's he's completely, you know, he's exhausted mentally and physically yeah, yeah. fatigued. Yeah. So he he gets out of here. He goes to Dr. Connors. He brings him the serum. Dr. Connors does some science magic on it, prepares it for Aunt May. Uh, he swings over to the hospital and tells Dr. Connors to call ahead. A man of your reputation, the, do- the hospital will listen to you. They'll inject anything if a man, <laughs> a man like you says it's okay. Yeah. Yep. So he gets to the hospital and Spider-Man swings in, gives them the serum. They inject Aunt May. And now it's just a waiting game to find out if she's going to wake up, come out of her coma. We go back to the Daily Bugle where uh, Mr. James, Mr. Jameson... Where JJ, <laughs> so polite, respectful. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's only because. So I think uh, we wrote JJ down the same is, line here. FYI. Yes, yeah. JJJ is happy because the the crime master, his whole operation was was folded up and his people arrested. Anyway, he, the point is that he's very happy and smiling again, which is one of the best like reoccurring jokes that how unsettled people get when JJJ smiles. Betty Brandt looks at him and says, "Mr. Jameson, you're smiling. Is anything wrong?" <laughs> Yeah, this this keeps coming up, and I, I just love that. What's really cool here is Peter Parker, in the last issue, was trying to push Betty Brant away by, by being a jerk. And he's coming in. He's not really being a jerk anymore, but he's all bruised up from this fight, like he's battered. And he says something like he just got into a scuffle over uh, when, when he was taking pictures, he got into some scuffle. And he's like, you know, that's just the, the cost of doing business, you know, sometimes I get into a fight. And she immediately, like, snaps. There's There's a panel that just shows, like, her terrified face because she links in her mind her brother who was killed by these criminals and Peter Parker and she realizes like she can't have anything to do with somebody who puts their life in danger she can't like put herself through that again <laughs> and she says this really good line Peter Peter why do you have this stubborn streak why can't you stick to your studies why must you always crave action <laughs> it's a very funny thing to say to Peter Parker yeah right <laughs> like, known action seeker yeah, so Peter Barker has all these great photos. He sells them for a ton of money to J. Jonah Jameson. He goes back to the hospital, and Aunt May is waking up and recovering. And uh, and this issue kind of just ends on a high note. Like, yeah, things are okay. Things worked out for him. He's he's gonna go be able to take a nap. <laughs> um, he's got some money in his pocket. Aunt May's okay. Yeah, he he kind of persevered and saved the day. Yeah, it's a great one. Definitely a highly recommended Spidey sequence. Um, I think it's rightfully considered an all timer. You know, yeah. these three issues, yeah. I, I think, honestly, I think we elucidated hopefully a lot of the reasons why it's considered a classic, but, a, yeah. you know, a lot of it, definitely like the final chapter, you know, you can't totally do it justice without reading it. So oh, sure. check it yeah. out. Yeah. Speaking of all time classics. Yeah. So again, this first half of the 66 list is, is literally just classic after classic. And, and then I think, is there one rando? Yeah, there's one, <laughs> yeah. one random one. Um, one random Iron Man that doesn't make sense, really, why we're reading it. Do you want to do Iron Man first, actually, and just go slightly yeah, yeah, out of order? Let's get that out of the way. Yeah. yeah. So we're going to talk then about Tales of Suspense number 78, and we just focused on the Iron Man story. Oh, wait, I, I just want to say, I, I am actually going to cover the back half okay. for extra issues yeah. for this year at some point, because, uh, yeah, there's some interesting stuff that get introduced. That's the first Captain America Nick mm-hmm. Fury crossover. I think, and uh, and it introduces some like interesting subsidiary of of Hydra, 
that becomes a big thing for a while. Them. <laughs> yes, them. Okay. Yeah. Now, now I remember why I skipped it. <laughs> so this is Tales of Suspense number 78. Um, this is, we, we don't know if we've actually talked about it on the pod yet, but Tales of Suspense became an Iron Man and a Cap, not not team up, but split magazine yeah. for, uh, for a pretty good long stretch. And in issue 78, the A story is Iron Man. And then that backup, like you're saying, is Nick Fury and Captain America team up. So the Iron Man story, the reason I include it is you get Iron Man taking on the Mandarin and his giant robots Ultimo, which is something that has is near and dear to my heart from the 90s uh, Iron Man animated series. Okay, I was wondering why you included this. <laughs> I was reading this and like, I have to ask Dave why this is here. <laughs> yeah, and more importantly, it's got Gene Colan art, which is the first we've seen of him in here. And it's really cool. Oh, yeah, the art, the art was really good. And I, I think it stands out by contrast. So it, Full credits, we've got Stanley, Gene Colan, Gary Michaels, Inks, and Art Mech on letters. Uh, mm-hmm. Gene Colan's use of shadow is is something that gets talked about a lot because in the 70s he did Tomb of Dracula, where it mm. really fits the horror vibe of the comics. But he's, he's implementing those techniques even here. And it's such a rich palette, I think, uh, just the way the book is colored. And again, like, you know, credit to Michaels on the inks there. But, like, it just looks really, really uh, full in a way that when you cut then to the B story, yeah, which is I think layouts by Kirby, uh, it looks thin by comparison. Yeah, it's, it's it's different. It's a very different style, right? It's it's not nearly as like clean as Kirby. Mm-hmm. Like, Kirby has those nice, clean, crisp black lines, and he doesn't have those big gradations yeah. of color the same way. Like he he likes to work in like big, bright colors that are all yeah le- less shade less shading. Yeah. So I mean, I would almost say just like flip through the flip through these pages and look at them. I, yeah, you can read them if you want to, but <laughs> there's not much to it. <laughs> I, yeah, the fight, the fight is, uh, it's just Mandarin has this big robot that he created called Ultimo. You can call it Ultimo? I would. You said Ultimo. You can. Oh, you, no, you, you, oh, I'm going to play this recording back. You said Ultimo. 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 Alt-tim-o. Okay, well, when you say it fast, it sounds no, like No, it's Ultimo is how I say it, I think. Yeah, you just said it again. Ultimo. Yeah. Now I'm just well, saying it differently to mess with you. Okay, all right. You're gonna you're gonna hear all this when this is released, and I will be vindicated. He's the ultimate Tim. Ultimate. <laughs> okay, yeah, there, there's not much. It's a big fight between Iron Man and a giant robot. The only thing that I think this is gonna lead into some more Iron Man we're gonna read for the next episode, uh, which ends with Tony Stark. Well, actually, there's a fun moment. He, he's leaving China. <laughs> he like knocks out some guard and just steals a jet plane. And has to, like, fly home as Iron Man, which I, I love the fact that Iron Man can't, like, fly very far under his own jet power yet. Like, he still needs uh, planes to yeah. cross country. <laughs> I, I, I do. I mean, I think, like, we haven't been talking about Iron Man as much. Um, yeah. Maybe maybe to his detriment. I actually kind of like some of the, you know, the romance stuff that's building there. And, you know, you get some mm-hmm. cool Iron Man villains, like the Titanium Man, who's, like, the Russian communist counterpart. Um, but the ones we have talked about pretty consistently uh tackle iron man just invading china <laughs> yeah yeah i mean that that's part of why it's dull to me and it's also like tony stark himself is not that interesting at this point like yeah. the only good characters are happy hogan and pepper Potts. Like, yeah they, they without them these would be so dull well and that's what this comic is is it's 14 pages of a fight and yeah. you know it's if that's if that's your jam cool but it's kind of boring and it's you know basically with the exception of the end where tony stark finally returns to the states to find that his business has been closed by government order and there's a warrant out for his arrest. And do we know why? Is there like a context to this? I, I don't, I didn't read before. 
why there's a warrant out for his arrest. Yeah, and why his... Well, we'll find out in Tales of Suspense number 79. Oh, okay. I wasn't sure if this was, like, the, the end point of a buildup. Okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So we'll, we'll see right. where that, that leads. So let's, with that said, cut back now to the classics, which is going to start with Fantastic Four number 46. Yeah, so we're, we're going to be reading Fantastic Four 46 through 53. That's eight issues of Fantastic Four. So... Dave, I just want to tell you this before we get into this, and you can't tell anyone, like any of our listeners, because I will be drummed out of the My Marvelous Year Club. Mm. I don't love the Galactus saga. Like, I'm not the biggest fan of what we're about to read. Like, surprisingly, I know it's important, and like, on that level, it's cool, like, the ideas-wise, but I think the actual issues are like, kind of a drag. That's interesting. I, I don't, that doesn't like, upset me. The way, if you had said you didn't love Spider-Man 31 to 33, I would have been concerned for the future of the show. <laughs> but the Galactus Saga, I'm not, I don't know, I kind of get that. It's super important. There's great ideas and great character yeah. additions. Yeah. And it's obviously dramatic, but it's hard It's hard to separate from what we know to follow. Like, with them, right. we know a Fantastic Four number 51 happened. It's hard mm-hmm. to take that out of context here i guess and okay so that being said because i got like almost all the way through this galactic galactus saga and i was like oh man do i not like fantastic four like do i just because they're definitely like second place to spider-man for me and kind of journey into mystery like i'm liking journey into mystery a lot more Mm -hmm. right now like that that's definitely my second place this is this is third i was like do i just think this is like important more than i'm enjoying it and then we got to 51, I think. 51's This Man, This Monster, which is Then we got to 51, and I was like, oh, no, wait. I do like this a lot. Yes. Because actually from 51 on, I really like this. It's just the Galactus stuff that I'm like, I think it's kind of a mess. Yeah, no, let's let's dive into it, because I, I do yeah. kind of agree. Like, Galactus isn't my favorite Fantastic Four story. Um, it, but it is probably the most well-known and certainly one of the most important things Marvel's ever done. Sure, yeah. So Fantastic Four number 46, as we build up to this, is Stanley, Jack Kirby, Joseph Eddings, and Artie Simek Letters. And this is, if you remember from 65, uh, we ended with the Inhumans about to fight the Fantastic Four, basically. And we had the big reveal, yeah, of Black Bolt, a.k.a. Black Agar Boltagon. And Black Bolt decks the thing. And you get a really nice thing versus, versus Black Bolt fight. But basically you find that, oh, turns out Black Bolt is definitely stronger. Um, Triton, this kind of fishy merman looking dude in a cloak. Creature is, from the Black Lagoon. Yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, he's desperate that the Seeker not find the Inhumans. And we don't know the Seeker until we cut away to him breaking into the Baxter building. Which really needs to up their security again. Oh my god. Well, also, the Seeker is the most ridiculous looking villain. He's like, it's funny, he's like four foot nine Mm -hmm. and really, really trying to hide it. I like, I was, okay, here's the thing. I was cracking up looking at the Seeker when he showed up. And then I turned the page to see that he had captured Dragon Man and like, Never has laughter turned to, like, terror so quickly. <laughs> like, the Dragon Man was... Like, I was just making fun of this guy, and then I was like, oh, man, he better not do anything to Dragon Man. Yeah. Yeah, he's he's ridiculous looking. <laughs> yeah, he's like Lord Farquaad from Shrek. Like, he's just... There's not much to he, him. He's wearing these big boots. He's got this hat that adds, like, a foot and a half to his height. <laughs> these ridiculous yeah. sunglasses. Yeah, and the Inhumans 
talk about him like he's this menace to be feared, you know? Exactly. Um, then, but he's really he's really just a, a lackey. He looks kind of like a macho man Randy Savage with, like, <laughs> Jack Kirby headgear on. It's really bad. <laughs> or, actually, you know who he kind of looks like is um, Dr. Psycho from DC? Mm, that I could see. So, like you were saying, they do, um, they do take capture the sedated dragon man who was still in the Baxter building. They just assume that he's an inhuman as well. Um, mm-hmm. Black Bolt, basically, as he's fighting the thing, he does his ultimate move, which is just like karate chop to the thing's chest. <laughs> and this spends his electron power. They talk about that he's got these antennae built into his suit and they gather electrons. Right. He's got his little tuning fork on his head. Yeah. Is, is that always a thing? Because like, this the was a surprise fork? to me. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well. Okay, yeah. I, I was like kinda of surprised by this. Yeah, I don't I, I don't think him running out of energy is as as common as here, but it basically it's a way for the battle to end and the inhumans retreat. There's one detail I want to point out, which is while the thing and Black Bolt are trading blows, the thing is really unsettled by the fact that Black Bolt is totally silent. Yeah. Like Black Bolt doesn't say a word. And it, it's a really fun like build up to like what's going on because he doesn't he doesn't make a peep and the thing like continually comments on it. It makes him uncomfortable. <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> that this guy isn't trading quips with him. That's a good point. Yeah, Black Bolt, totally silent, extremely strong. Um, the So once the battle ends, Fantastic Four do, you know, they come back, they realize their building's been invaded. So when they track down the Seeker, he spins this tale for them of, of explaining the Inhumans, essentially. Mm-hmm. And he is also an Inhuman. He's trying to bring all of them back in what they call the Great Refuge, which is where they live. And he basically, it's this long sort of tale of um, the history of man, but spiked with uh, the Inhumans as this advanced civilization that was like in rise with parallel alongside Homo sapien. But because they were so different, they were like feared and hated by the growing Neanderthal legions and basically just said, forget it, we're going to have our own little civilization. Yeah, it's the first time that... I've read anything that specifically mentions like genetics in this because they talk about that they're just like genetically superior and genetically modified that they have that they are like genetically uh, fine tuning their gene pool. They've kind of danced around this idea. Stanley has danced around the idea of kind of like genetic stuff before, but never so explicitly. Yeah, it will definitely become bigger in in Marvel and in power sets. But here we get it with the Inhumans. This will... I think if you're looking at this, it's like, oh, this is the story of the Inhumans. There's definitely more to it to come. Yeah. Um, but this is, you know, what we have at this point. So that brings us to Fantastic Four number 47. The Inhumans are back in their refuge. And it's kind of interesting. They've all, like, they all got pulled back there by, um, like, Black Bolt and Gorgon and all them, like, brought everyone back, specifically Crystal. And it kind of makes it seem like Crystal was had escaped to Earth. Uh, and Crystal is, like dragging her feet and doesn't want to go because she loves Johnny Storm now, which is like he was just the man chasing her through an alley the last time we saw. I like I don't think we've seen a scene of them interacting at all. They fall in love at first sight, more or less. It's wild. The both of them are like inconsolable about being separated. It's like okay, picture this. I'm at the airport at the uh, at the gate and I see like supermodel and actress Cara Delevingne. Right. And I go, oh, hey, how are you? And she's like, uh, good. I got to go. And she gets on a plane and flies off. And I just start weeping and crying. Like that is about the level of like, I met someone and now I'm like, my heart is forever theirs. This is why I can't fly anymore. It happens <laughs> to me every time. Cardellavine. Yeah, yeah. Every flight. Yeah. 
Yep. It's yeah, it's it's wild. Also, uh oh, I wanna ask ask you something. They call Dragon Man an artificial android life form. Uh-huh. Which like he's not an android, right? He's a clay man brought to life. I thought that that was my understanding. Okay, all right. Dave is shrugging. So that's <laughs> uh, all right, so Ben and Johnny fly off after Dragon Man, and Sue and Reed go to help Triton because his, uh, his like, tank of water smashed. He needs water to live. Reed's being, like, a real jerk <laughs> to Sue, as always. And this is, like, this is going to happen a lot. Like, these last these next few issues, Reed is, like, kind of an unbearable dick to Sue. Like, Yeah. So we talk about, we talk about like, kind of the rampant sexism kind of in yeah. the times. But I think here we actually get a nuanced version of that, which is post-marriage. They're basically just a struggling couple. Except they, they they just got married, and now he's it's it's like it's borderline abusive. Well, their dynamic changes post marriage. I mean, so like it, this is where we start to get Reed more in love with science than he is with Sue. Yeah. Which, come to think of it, I don't think is really a big feature until this point. Mm-hmm. Um, no, not yeah, necessarily. Yeah, it is. It is definitely bad. I mean, it's it's when you think about like what a happy marriage could be. You mm-hmm. know, it's not. It's not Sue saying, I've never seen him like this, so cold, so unreachable. Like, they really, um, they have problems. And I that's interesting as a character yeah. dynamic. Well, the thing is, it's not they have problems. It's really, like, Reed just has a problem. Like, it's not framed at all. Like, this is 100% Reed is just being unreachable. But it is also who Reed is. Like, we've known he is an obsessive scientist. This mm-hmm. is where it really gets escalated. And now we have Susie having different expectations um, and them just failing to communicate them to each other. And I think this is something that like they'll get much better at dealing with together, you know, yeah. where we think of it, I think of it now as like a loving thing where they kind of have an understanding. Um, but here it's just, it's just kind of cruel. Yeah. Yeah. It's like Reed is just a monster. And then the, the thing is like, it's frustrating the way that Sue responds, which is mostly just like, oh, like, what can I do to win him back over? Right. Like he's being, you know, a real jerk. They all decide to go track down the uh, the inhumans in the great refuge and we, we get this scene that back in the great refuge maximus the maximus the mad maximus the magnificent at this point mm. is the ruler of the inhumans but when it get when they get back it becomes clear that like he's black bolt's brother and he has maybe taken the throne improperly like it's really black bolt's crown to wear and while he was gone maximus is like yeah i'll wear this it's pretty funny because it's built up like there's this coup happening and then black bolt walks over and just <laughs> takes the crown off his head and he's like he immediately goes from this big posturing to like oh uh, yeah of course it's yours uh i was just keeping it warm for you they're basically it's like capture the flag like he just yoinks the crown <laughs> off his head which first off amazing crown design that thing is absurdly big and awesome yeah it's ridiculous yeah, it, it, like it felt like it was building up to something bigger than Black Bolt just picking it up off his head. Oh, yeah, but, but right before this, Maximus actually like six a group called the Alpha Primitives on the Inhumans, which are these like kind of ape-like humans, these mindless. What do they call them? A ferocious, senseless horde of rampaging Inhumans to fight them off, and then they fight them off, and then he pulls the crowd off his head, and everyone just kind of seems to forget that Maximus just like unleashed a, a horde of. The alpha primitives who don't really get explained and we'll see a lot more of that later yeah, they don't That's... get explained at this point this this whole sequence and kind of the the inhuman royal dynamics it it needed its own inhumans comic to play yeah, it, out it it's feels rushed so rushed yeah yeah 
Anyway, so the Fantastic Four fly to the Andes uh, under, I, I can't remember, if they basically trap down where the Great Refuge is, and it's hidden in the Andes. <laughs> in the middle of the flight, Sue Storm decides to give herself a new haircut to get Reed's attention. <laughs> Just funny. Also, I wonder if that's in response to Jack Kirby getting a bunch of fan mail saying that Sue's haircut was out of style. Is that something I've seen before? People fussing about her hair? It is actually a nice, um, there's some nice interaction between her and Johnny as he kind of yeah. teases her about doing her hair. But we don't we don't get to see them interact like brother and sister too often. Yeah, uh, yeah. But the, that sequence, I think, does it better than I've seen in a while. Yeah. So I, I like there's a, a scene on the plane where Johnny is fussing about Crystal and how much he loves her and whatever. He says, knock it off, Ben. We all got problems. For all I know, I'll never see Crystal again. And Sue says, Johnny Storm, you've barely met her. You hardly know her. Reed responds, Sue, when a man thinks he's in love, nobody can tell him he's not. And this is the part I really love. Johnny immediately responds, that's the first time he ever called me a man. <laughs> <laughs> that's what that's what Johnny takes away from that. He's really excited. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So they land the plane and they walk into the great refuge ready for a fight. The Inhumans just basically say, like, we, we need to be separate because humans don't trust us. Kind of mutant stuff, right? We'll, we'll be cast out by normal humans. They won't accept us. We need to stay separate. And Reed does explain, I don't know if you're about to go into this, but Reed does explain that Inhumans are not mutants. He explicitly calls that out, um, mm -hmm. that they've used the science controlling their genetics. And I think that is probably into the anticipation of fan and reader confusion saying what is the difference between mutants and inhumans which is obviously yeah. something that has sort of carried through to today yeah and we'll, we'll see that like that differentiated a lot more in the future in like really interesting ways the inhumans have this great miniseries in like 1999 i think that's one of my favorites yeah um yeah but reed is just basically like no no you need to join the world of men we'll accept you like he's adamant about this point and it reads is really strange it's, it's a very strange thing to be so like to pushy about they're just like <laughs> he walks in and it's like i don't really know much about your culture but you need to join the rest of the world uh and it's definitely like we'll definitely accept you and there'll be no consequences for that i i don't know why he's taking such a hard stance on this maybe short-sighted but i could see i mean one he's i think he's trying to be welcoming and two there's probably a part of read here that's like man your technology we should totally jam i need to study you yeah 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 again it just kind of lends this whole like if this feels rushed you know, it feels like he, he just walked into this. He doesn't know anything about them, and he's pushing for this reunification. Anyway, Maximus Maximus the Mad, Black Bolt's brother, uh, decides that he wants to he wants to destroy all humans. And the way he's going to do that is he has an Atmo gun that will send out vibrations that kill all humans and leave the Inhumans alive, basically to rule supreme. And once the rest of the Inhumans see what he did, they'll crown him ruler, blah, blah, blah. And that's how this issue ends, with at, uh, Maximus activating his Atmo gun. Takes us to Fantastic Four number 48, which is titled The Coming of Galactus. Now, I think one interesting thing... <laughs> which is strange, because it's like, we're in the middle of a story here. Yeah, <laughs> right. I think the interesting thing about these, the 48, 49, 50, which is the Galactus trilogy, is they're, they open with an inhuman story, and they close with like a Johnny in college story, <laughs> you know? So like all the Galactus stuff falls in between. Oh my God. It, and it just sucks, sucks the tension out of it. It's weird. So we, uh, the issue opens, um, there's a, a really good cover. First of all, with the watchers terrified, portly gaze, <laughs> you know, fearing something that is, that is on the way. Um, but again, 
we're going to open with the Inhumans, and we get Did you Maximus. Say portly gaze. <laughs> portly gaze. Yeah. It's because like, he's like he's a chubby he's little baby. Husky, he's a husky boy. Okay. Yeah. It took me a minute to get that. All right. Sorry. <laughs> so Matt Maximus, as we just heard, he uses his Atmo gun. It fails. It doesn't work. Uh, the Inhumans recognize that humans are not the enemy. As a result. Yeah. There's nothing. There's nothing to this. It's just like no one stops the gun. It just doesn't work. It's the yeah. weirdest plot point. It's just like everyone like winces like, oh, here it comes. And then nothing happens. And he's like, ah, damn, faulty gun. <laughs> and then and then the threat's over. It's the worst like build up cliffhanger resolution. Yep. It doesn't work. So instead of instead of killing all of humanity, Maximus throws up a technology that does work, which is mm-hmm. a negative barrier around the Great Refuge. The Fantastic Four escape. Ben has to pull Johnny from crystal's arms to get him out of the dome before it closes so we get our our romeo and juliet separated by this impenetrable barrier um i do kind of like ben's internal monologue here where he's like i know you're gonna hate me but perhaps you'll you'll understand one day you know kind of the the teenage the lovesick teenager and as much as i think it's ridiculous that like johnny storm and crystal are so captured by one another like i i still think it's absurd I do like this dynamic that plays out, right? Like that the two of them pine after each other and that they can't get to each other anymore. Them being separated is the yeah. most interesting the romance uh, will be. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, I just like over the next little bit where he is like the two of them physically can't go to each other. I think that that's something interesting about that. Yeah, that's good tension. Um, so finally, we cut to Silver Surfer soaring the Ooh, spaceways. So cool. Yeah. And he yeah. is... What his name suggests, he is a uh, kind of a Tin Man looking bald uh, silver guy, and he rides a surfboard in space. He looks like he looks like he's been like molded from mercury. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I'm sure people know what he looks like. The, the the they put like I don't know a few pages, a bunch of panels of him just surfing through the most colorful like cosmos. That's really fun. These are some really awesome pages, and I love. There's a detail where he flies by a bunch of scrolls. Yeah, in a ship. And they panic. Yeah. They like, they see him and you don't know what's up with this guy yet. They panic and they like, they try to shut down all their systems. They black out all of their planets that they control. Yeah. Yeah. To, to mask their presence from him is really cool. It's a really cool touch that like, it also, the fact that they're the Skrulls who we've dealt with before versus like any of the dozen other random alien races we've seen really start making this feel like a big lived in cosmic universe right right? that we've got this like this set universe that's starting to build because so far like most of them have come and gone the ovoids (laughs) the the uh that monster from cosmos whatever like they're never going to come back again but the scrolls like we're seeing them a few times and starting to feel like there's a you know i don't know there's a a international community that's being built up and that they're the villains that are scared of this is pretty cool yeah it's it's definitely a nice detail um so as the fendesk four return to their home uh, they find that the sky is on fire. Uh, this leads to all sorts of chaos and people freaking out. Um, a lot of the bystanders immediately blame the human torch <laughs> because fire and fire. Uh, we get yeah. basically Ben and Johnny on crowd control. Reed goes into science beard mode and he is investigating. You well, know, no, Explain what that means, science beard mode. <laughs> What? Explain what science beard mode means. I don't think that sentence like means sen- makes sense out of context. Pretty, pretty common. Pretty common knowledge. Okay. Anytime. Yeah, he, he, gets, he gets a five o'clock shadow because he's yeah, like, anytime too Reed busy needs to, to investigate something, he grows a beard. 
and he gets trapped in his lab. My wife looked up at this and was like, oh, he looks good with a beard. <laughs> it's true. Reed with a beard is definitely better than Reed without a beard. There's no question. So, so he's, he's doing this and he's being, again, like such an ass to Sue Storm. And there's a shot of her like having enough and stomping out of the lab, like furious at him. And I, I'm reading this panel by panel and I just like, I just had a, a quick little fantasy that I was going to flip to the next panel and it was just going to be her like making out with Namor on a couch. <laughs> like <laughs> in Atlantis. But alas, she like goes and tries to look pretty for him or something. Yeah. <laughs> and instead the watcher shows up with all sorts of uh, proclamations about what's happening and also wild technology that the Fantastic Four and Reed in particular can use to to fend off Galactus. So the Watcher, uh, again, forsaking his his policy only to watch and interfering. Um, the Silver Surfer lands on Earth, and he pretty instantly heralds Galactus. He shoots out kind of a meme and says, yep, this plan's good. And Ben punches him <laughs> right after he does this. The surfer goes flying, but the last panel is the the coming of Galactus, and it is a big green red giant G on his chest. Galactus. It looks so bad. It is, I like. It is so weird, and the coloring gets changed almost instantly in the next issue. The, the beginning and the next, it's different, but like he looks Christmassy. He's a big old Christmas tree with a G and, and a big capital letter g okay there's actually a really funny letter coming up where someone writes like i love the issue but how did he have a g on his chest is the human alphabet universal which okay actually the other ridiculous thing about galactus is that he's about the same size as the watcher which is like what 20 25 feet tall like he's big but he's not like a skyscraper and he looks like a human right he just looks like a really big human there which like is a little silly right like why would galactus this you know cosmic entity just be like a big human it seems a little weird this is going to get talked about later in like such an interesting way so if you think this is silly there's actually a pretty good explanation for this at some point no they'll they'll definitely explain that one and i'll I'll call out the g uh it does stand for god that was basically stanley the rumor at least is stanley told jack kirby you know draw god (laughs) <laughs> and uh, and that is what the big D stood for. Oh my god, that that's the best you could come up with. <laughs> All right, so uh, that leads us into Fantastic Four forty nine, titled "If This Be Doomsday," and the Galactus immediately looks better. He's purple now, shades of purple, which and he's like, showing off a lot of leg. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Big, big, beefy calves. Yeah, yeah. So Galactus is like kind of framed as he's here basically to destroy Earth. He eats worlds. He, like, sucks the energy out of the world. And there's this really fun montage scene of what would happen. What What is going to happen if Galactus gets his way? Which is, like, he's going to suck the oceans dry. He's going to carve up cities and, like, basically drain the entire Earth and leave it this withered husk. Um, the Watcher starts talking to him and tries to convince Galactus to move on, right? Like, basically, you know, I know you need to feed, but you've never eaten an occupied world before. Which, I don't know if that holds true canon. He says that, like, this is the first time he's eaten, like, a world with sentience on it. But he, Galactus is like, oh, well, you know, I can't be bothered to not eat this world just because there's these humans that I barely noticed. Like, it's interesting. They keep, like, underlining this as if, you know, it would be kind of like that we wouldn't eat an apple because there's some bacteria on it. Yeah. Why would we care if we accidentally kill some bacteria or some insignificant creature on it like we're just 
less than insects to him. Yeah, and I do think we kind of oftentimes now think of Galactus and, and definitely the Silver Surfer as like being conscientious of living forms that might already yeah. live on a planet, but they don't really have that concern here. Which kind of makes sense if they, you know, stick with that canon of like that Galactus has never eaten a civilized world before. He just hasn't run into this moral problem before and he's not really that prepared to deal with it. The Fantastic Four tried to like fight him and they're, they're all immediately like just kind of brushed off. Like the Galactus barely puts any energy into brushing them all away and they have no effect on him. They realize that they can't do anything against him. So <laughs> they all go for a nice schwitz after this. <laughs> like Ben takes a bath. Reed reads like, oh, this is a good time to shave. There's a there's a just a funny scene of like the rest of them like, well, we don't know what to do. Reed needs to come up with a plan, so we might as well relax in the meantime. Yeah, it is weird. It is kind of an odd breakaway um, where they all just take a take a moment to kind of you know gather their senses after getting whooped. Uh, it's strange that they have that much time, but it's kind of a you know a nice little cutaway moment. The Silver Surfer who got punched by the thing in the last issue <laughs> falls into Alicia's apartment. She. Silver Surfer, like, falls through the skylight into her apartment. And Alicia is immediately like, what is this presence? So noble. She's obsessed with the nobility of the Silver Surfer, who is this kind of cold, calculating, oh, your human concerns don't matter to Galactus. He's this cosmic force, etc. And we're just basically going to see a bunch of Alicia trying to convince him that, like, humanity matters. These lives matter. Basically, like, it is an evil for Galactus to consume this world. Yeah, I quite like Alicia making the case for humanity to the Silver yeah. Surfer. I think these are nice moments, and it's definitely, it gives Alicia, like, a really influential role in the proceedings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Galactus needs to construct this giant ray on top of the Baxter building to consume the Earth, which like, I don't think that happens in the future, that he needs this, like, big contraption. I don't know if that's true. No, but that's the thing. Is it? Okay. Yeah, he, he just basically needs to construct this, and he's just kind of, like, psychically moving all these parts around. <laughs> ben Grimm basically jumps on top of it and starts punching pieces of it off, which is what he does best. Galactus, in order to fight off the Fantastic Four so that they don't have to... So that he can finish constructing his big machinery, unleashes the Punisher on them. It's oh, yeah. weird, like, that Frank Castle is here this early. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he just wants his kids back. He, uh, yeah, no... Not the cool Punisher that you know, the the worst Kirby monster design that he has ever done. It kind of looks like his bugs from um, like the fourth world, if you're familiar with that, like Forager style. Uh, yeah, it's just a big old bug. Yeah, he's like, he's kind of like a little tiny toad, like wrapped in machinery. It's so dumb. It's so bad. And it's also just like Galactus, this world ending threat, needs a four foot tall frog man to fight for him who, yeah, it's bad. I'm still ready for the the Punisher mythos where this connects to the actual Frank Castle <laughs> vigilante murderer because I, that's coming. I bet that's going to happen. Okay, yeah. Uh, it's so bad. Basically, he holds them off long enough for the Galactus to finish building his machinery and then he retreats. Meanwhile, the Watcher is saying, I have something to help, um, but the only person who can go and get it is Johnny Storm. So I'm going to transport him across the galaxy to go retrieve this this technology. And there's this really fun scene of Johnny, like, flying through cosmic space, dodging anti-life bands, I think they're called. And uh, he goes to retrieve this thing from Galactus's planet, they call it. It looks like a big ship, but it's a really cool design. You get this big splash page of this huge ship that's, it's, it's a big Mobius strip, like, kind of one of those... Ant- 
MC Escher Mobius strip drawings. Yeah, that that's where Johnny Storm flies into there. Yeah, I'm. I mean, I think honestly, this comic's really good. Fantastic Four number forty nine, I think, is the best piece of the trilogy because yeah. it's all it's all just Galactus. Yeah, it doesn't start out in humans, and it doesn't. So okay, Fantastic Four number fifty. The yeah. front page shows, you know, like... Well, it frames it as the saga of the Silver Surfer. Right, yeah. The, the startling saga of the Silver Surfer. But then down in the corner it says, At last, the human torch in college. Don't miss Johnny's first day. It's <laughs> yeah. just like, completely sucks all the air out of any kind of like, Oh man, Galactus is about to destroy the world. Well, oh, no, Johnny's going to college. It doesn't fit. It doesn't fit real well at all. Um, it's It's hard to explain. <laughs> it feels like they just didn't have the uh enough pages to fill for like the galactus story like they're like ah, we we just can't stretch this out to a full issue yeah we got to fill it with something all right i guess we'll start johnny going to college it's like they have so many wheels in motion you know i, I think yeah. it's part of it too like it, that's kind of how the comic has been playing is i don't know think of like all those inhumans seeds that were planted over the course of like 10 issues you mm-hmm. know like they're just keeping all these balls rolling and they are finally like we need to get johnny in college but we're gonna do it in the galactus issue it's just odd timing you know what i actually kind of like the the scene at the end though we'll, we'll get into it but I, I actually think all that stuff is pretty fun it's fine yeah it's like it's not the worst come down but i think to put on the cover alongside the biggest threat the fantastic four ever faced is is very odd or that like marvel comics or superhero comics period have ever faced right like that's what kind of stands out about this is we've had these kind of vague, um, oh, with if I get these missiles, I'll control the world. Or, I don't know, these big quote-unquote world-ending threats, but nothing actually, like, it feels very, like Dr. Octopus. Like, really? You're going to take over the world? You're going to be... I I don't really see that happening. No. Uh, but this, this, like, this really clearly lays out, like, this guy's close to really destroying Earth. Like, and that's that feels more real than it's ever felt before. Yeah. So, Fantastic Four number 50, Galactus finds pants. Um, the Silver Surfer betrays... Wait, does he get pants here? Yeah, he's got pants. His des- I didn't notice his design change. He stopped okay. putting on pants while Reed was shaving. <laughs> okay. Uh, Silver Surfer betrays and attacks Galactus. So Alicia's pleas for humanity do get to him. He does turn on Galactus, who, you know, he doesn't... He can't exactly, like, knock him out, but definitely his cosmic power is having some impact on Galactus, and certainly the surprise and the anger it generates in him. This is the first time we've seen what I think is called Kirby Crackle. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's come up before, but it's just that technique of energy energy speckling around that is attributed to Jack Kirby. Yeah. Keep an eye out for that. So the Watcher uh, kind of explains to the team that Galactus is above good and evil, which I, I like the... The philosophical underpinnings of Galactus mm-hmm. that he is just a force of nature that yeah. needs to that needs to eat to survive. I think this is something that will continue to be discussed um, by Reed Richards in particular. But yeah. it's the Watcher kind of kicks off that line of thinking here. Johnny travels back through time and infinity. He is shook. Um, he this is a cool moment. Yeah. So he like he travels back. You know, on this journey the Watcher sent him through. And basically, in viewing all the cosmos and infinity and all the time travel, his human mind, it's too much to take in. And he's kind of, he's shocked and he's just saying, we're ants, we're just ants. And it's a, it's a really cool little moment because this is, um, I don't know, like this level of trying to portray the human mind taking in too much 
It doesn't mm-hmm. like Space Odyssey, 2001 Space Odyssey, I think came out like two years later, you know? Mm-hmm. So like, this is definitely something that gets played with in other mediums. Yeah. I mean, it, it's kind of, it's a Lovecraftian idea, right? Mm-hmm. Like that kind of, uh, it's so beyond human understanding mm-hmm. and hu- the capability of human perception that your mind breaks rather than being able to deal with it. Yeah. yeah. And it's also the first time that Marvel Comics period has dealt with any, any sort of like existential dread. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah it's interesting so johnny does come back with what is called the ultimate nullifier so reed uses he threatens galactus with the ultimate nullifier mm-hmm. and uh galactus of course is angry and, and and you know for the first time a little bit threatened wait so what's, what is the weapon. ultimate nullifier the ultimate nullifier is galactus galactus explains uh is basically this thing will just wipe out everything it will wipe out all of existence galactus included so mm-hmm. it's a it's like a Mutually assured destruction. Yeah, it's like a battle of the wills, kind of, right? Like, yeah. Is Reed Richards actually willing to carry this out? Right. So will would Reed destroy everything in an effort to save Earth? Um, and would Galactus sacrifice himself to see Reed carry that through? So, uh, And would he believe him? Yeah. Yeah. So Galactus, um, Galactus believes it, whether Reed was bluffing or not. And he ultimately says, all right, fine, I'm not going to eat Earth. He leaves, but he lashes out at the Silver Surfer as he does so and traps him on Earth, which will, of course, uh, keep the Silver Surfer around as part of the Marvel Universe for a bit longer. This issue ends, or this sort of segment ends with Ben sees Alicia's reaction to the Silver Surfer and her um, interest in his nobility, and he gets sad and jealous and walks away. Uh, quite depressed. Well, there's a good shot of Alicia running up on this rooftop and like running. There's a shot of Ben standing there and she runs right past him to the Silver Surfer. And Ben starts walking off, like sulking off. And she, and then, and then of course, that's when Alicia says, I must introduce you to the most wonderful human being you'll ever, ever meet. Oh, where'd he go? Yeah. There's also a funny part where everyone leaves. The Silver Surfer flies off saying he's going to like explore this world. He wants to learn more about humanity and explore the world. The rest of the Fantastic Four leave. Uh, from there, there's the most incongruous cutaway to anything you'll see in Marvel. It's the Metro College football team. And this page <laughs> is all about the coach of Metro College dealing with his difficult star player. And these are not names that you will recognize, nor are they names that you will see very often. Classic character, Coach Thorpe? Yeah, of course. Well, obviously think, named after Jim Thorpe, the iconic um, Native American football player. And that's actually does kind of tie into we now get Johnny Goes to College, as the cover promised. And this is where Johnny meets Wyatt Wingfoot, who is his uh, very, very large uh, Native American roommate. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Wyatt's pretty cool. I like Wyatt. I think I would have liked the... Uh, the ending with Galactus, like, I think that's a pretty good way to deal with Galactus instead of just like, you know, we beat him up. I think it would have landed better if I hadn't just read like the day before Thor did just the same thing this year. Like Thor had literally the exact same storyline where uh, someone like one of Odin's advisors steals all of his power and he's unstoppable. And basically the way that Thor deals with him is by threatening to destroy all of Asgard by like unsheathing the Odin knife. And it's the same thing. It's just like, oh, yeah, I'll destroy everything rather than let you take over. Yeah. And he's like, oh, I believe you. All right, I quit. <laughs> same exact plot point, which is too bad because they were actually both they both work pretty well by themselves. But seeing it twice in like a six month span kind of stinks. Um, that leads us into Fantastic Four number 51. And this is when I 
realized that no, I do love Fantastic Four, and this is very good. <laughs> um, titled "This Man, This Monster." Do you think this is the most famous issue of Fantastic Four? Uh, as a standalone, I mean, yeah. Galactus is definitely more famous. I mean, I yeah, but... no, I don't. I think it's more, um, it's more critically acclaimed. Yeah, these okay. days than just about anything because it is this sort of unique thing. But I mean, we're coming up on the debut of Black Panther. There's going to be some Doctor Doom Silver Surfer stuff coming up um, that I think of as bigger stories. But this one is definitely like the people's choice these days. Yeah. So the thing is depressed walking around town. He's like walking around the rain, just kind of like beating himself up and Alicia will never love him and etc. They do a really good job of kind of framing his depression here yeah he really kind of talks like somebody who's like he's not just this kind of blustering angry like he's beating himself up some people actually stop and like ask if he's all right and he's like yeah yeah i'm fine don't worry about me walking down the street eventually someone opens their door this bald guy opens their door and like invites him in basically like oh you look rough do you want you want to come in and warm up he goes in and uh he's like yeah sure why not i got nothing to lose Starts kind of telling his life story to the guy, sympathetic, and uh, this guy offers him some tea or coffee or something, and then it becomes apparent this guy is drugging him. He's getting sleepy, and he, like, the thing thing doesn't really realize it. He's like, oh, man, I'm tired. And he's like, well, just take, take a rest, take a nap on my couch. <laughs> the thing falls asleep. This guy pulls out this enormous piece of machinery. He, like, opens his door just basically to show a wall of engine <laughs> behind the door. Yeah. He's going to swap places with the thing. He's going to use this machine to basically, like, swap their bodies. He swaps places and basically, like, Ben becomes human Ben Grimm again. And this guy becomes all rocky, like the thing. And uh, he's like, oh, I got to practice my my Ben Grimm impression. <laughs> I need to sound just like him. He does a fantastic Ben Grimm, for, for what it's worth, as this issue progresses. Oh, yeah, he immediately is. Yeah, he immediately starts speaking just like him. We cut to Reed Richards working on something to basically stop galactus if he comes again like he's worried that they barely escaped this this threat and uh if galactus ever shows up again they won't have anything to to fight him off with and he's being rude to sue about it as always so when fake thing shows up he uh again he does a fantastic ben Grimm impersonation and we get kind of the the body snatching um like what would you call it like freaky friday kind of thing where all of a sudden ben Grimm shows up in his human guys as well. So Ben yeah. wakes up, he is transformed back to Ben Grimm. And now we have a thing and a Ben Grimm facing Reed and Sue. And this is one, I like this issue an awful lot. This is one of the stranger moments in the comic because Reed and Sue, they have a total willingness to let Ben just leave. Like, so like they not only reject that it's it could actually be Ben, but they're basically like, oh, that's weird. You do look a lot like Ben. And then he leaves. They say that like, I gotta admit, Mister, you you look an awful lot like our friend Ben Grimm, but uh, yeah, sorry, he's right here. This is the thing. All right, bye. Yeah, like, and then they just are like they move on immediately, and Reed is like, ah, well, now that that's cleared up, the thing I trust you with my life, and I've never trusted anyone more. <laughs> <laughs> right. It would have been so much better if Ben was just drugged during yeah. this entire sequence because it it adds this layer, uh, unnecessary layer of like why would you react that way but anyway and then they're not even concerned it's not just like they don't believe him they're just like they just don't even think about it oh that was weird let's never let's never think about that again yeah yeah, yeah it's it's kind of lame um but because reed trusts the thing so much and this being the clear true thing 
uh, he he has Ben hold on to this rope as Reed is exploring the space-time barrier uh, like a solo astronaut, essentially. And he's got Ben literally holding, you know, the, the harness back to the safety of the Baxter building. We get this big splash page of Kirby machinery. It's like, did Jack Kirby just discover MC Escher? Because it's immediately like all of his stuff is very Escher-like in these like impossible geometries. Which You're is talking good. about the machinery? Yeah. Uh, I think Kirby, I always, I think Kirby's machinery is being pretty consistent. Um, that would be interesting to track like influences and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know if he like just discovered it, but he's at least like bringing it in a little bit more because yeah. like he, he does have that style, but he's starting to bring in stuff that it's like, oh, that that's impossible to actually build. Like this is, you know, this is a two dimensional representation of an impossible three dimensional. Yeah. Reed is in subspace, I think is what he calls it. Um, and we get some of those really cool like photo layouts. Some of my favorite, actually, the uh, of those like really strange um, photo layouts that they've been doing. Collage type design, yeah, yeah. yeah. And right in the middle of this, we cut to a scene of Johnny Storm drinking coffee in a cafe, being harassed by like the quarterback of the college football team. And the coach comes and breaks it up, discovers that Wyatt Wingfoot is the grandson of a famous football player mm-hmm. and tries to convince him to join the football team and like and then reveals that this coach is a big believer in like mendelian genetics basically like your grandfather was great at football you're going to be great at football too <laughs> and like he it's funny it's not just once like several times he just talks about how uh it runs in the family that boy that boy has a destiny to be a great football player and there's simultaneously nothing i'm less interested in than the metro college football program yeah and an extreme urge to see an entire issue of just Wyatt on the football team. <laughs> yeah. Why, why it's kind of interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. Th- th- so you get this, like, it basically feels like, well, we got to put Johnny in here somewhere because he's missing. It feels out of place. Oh yeah. Anyway, basically, uh, Reed Richards is out floating in this like negative space or subspace or whatever. And he starts like yoinking on the rope to get pulled back in. The fake Ben is like, I mean, his his motivation is basically to like he wants to he wanted to prove that he was the true genius. So he's got right, some, he's yeah. one of those inventors. He's got hostility towards Reed, and basically, as he watches Reed selflessly explore, he plans on letting go of him. He plans right. on like not right. pulling him back in. So he's got him right where he wants him. You know, he's got Reed's trust against all odds, and he could just let him go. and And he thinks with Reed gone, he'd be the greatest inventor there is. Um, but he sees the selflessness of Reed and he sees the willingness to explore. And he's having this like come to uh, like come to moment. Come of, to Galactus moment. <laughs> yeah, right. Of, of basically realizing, no, I I don't think I want to kill this man. I actually honor and respect him. And that's the moment the rope snaps. Yep. <laughs> yep. So, and then a really great moment, you know, the rope breaks. Reed is basically like, Oh, well, he's accepting of his death. He's just like, I I can't make it back. He's on these, he's like on these rocks all hurtling towards Earth, which is like now he's out in space, which isn't quite clear to me. Like he's in a different dimension over Earth, but it's well, clearly Earth. Like you can see Earth's continents. Well, he does call it, you know, it's a subspace, but he also says that it's like a negative zone. And yeah. this is where we get the, really the introduction of what will become known as the negative zone. Yeah, yeah. Um, so anyway, he, yeah, he's kind of in this like negative thing where the, these rocks are hurtling down to Earth and he's going to hit them. He's basically going to get sucked into the atmosphere and burnt up or destroyed. The fake thing leaps out into this portal and basically winds his way down to Reed to save him. And 
And then just like football throws Reed back towards the portal. Yeah. <laughs> which is very great. And we get this great shot of the fake thing, like sitting on a rock, kind of just looking content, I guess, and thinking to himself, I finally did one thing I can be proud of, which is, yeah, it, it works. Like it was a really cool moment. I'm just, you know, I lived my life wrong and I was so consumed with jealousy. But in this moment, I can finally do something worthwhile and helpful for humanity. I think what's crazy, too, is he so he has this moment of of, you know, being being the good guy finally. But he also mm-hmm. behaves exactly like we would expect Ben to behave. Yeah. You know, like if this was the death of the thing, quote unquote, like this is how you would think it would actually play out. Sure. Yeah. 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 I I think that actually kind of lends it a little bit more power Mm -hmm. to that, right? Because that shot of the thing like falling into the atmosphere is that much more powerful because of our connection to him. At that moment, Ben Grimm, real Ben Grimm, human Ben Grimm decides he's going to go see Alicia basically to show her that he's back. And like as he's knocking on the door, his hand, we get a shot of his hand turning back into Rocky thing as uh, presumably the other thing just died and his power is reverting back to him. He decides since he's the thing again, he's going to run off and he doesn't want to subject Alicia to this. She opens the door and is just like, oh, no one's there. Who was at the door? I had a feeling. My heart says as though it was someone I love. (laughs) She's got a real intuition. Oh, speaking of intuition... The thing goes back to Reed and Sue, and this time Sue is like, oh, this is definitely him. I know for sure this is definitely the uh, the real the thing. And Reed is like, all right, yeah, for sure. Sue's female intuition is never wrong. It's like, it was wrong 10 minutes ago. Like, this other guy showed up and you were like, get out of here, exact lookalike of our good friend Ben Grimm. <laughs> and they basically, the thing is like mad about mad at this guy, and Reed is like, no, like he sacrificed himself and he lived and died like a man. Yeah, the, the exact quote, which I do quite love from Reed here, is he paid the full price, and he paid it like a man. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty funny. This is really good, and it felt like, with, besides that one little cut to Johnny's college, it felt like a totally self-contained issue. Yeah, yeah. It was, yeah, one of, one of my favorites. All right, so next up, we read Fantastic Four number 52. This one starts out with the Fantastic Four driving this new flying car which they say was given to them by this foreign country, this African country, Wakanda. And it's it's a gift that's part of an invitation to come visit this like mysterious country. It's a literal welcome wagon. <laughs> right, yes. Uh, they, uh, they go pick up Johnny from college along with Wyatt Wingfoot, and then they head to Wakanda using this, this so, I'm pretty car. sure they bring Wyatt. Bas- like, he's just, like, asleep, like, in the room with Johnny, so they're like, we better bring him? <laughs> yeah, it's very strange. Yeah, well, Johnny's just like, can I bring my friend Wyatt? Yeah, <laughs> on our fan, our superhero adventure. It's like a good thing they did. He comes in handy. He does come in handy, but I feel like Wyatt did not consent to this trip. No, <laughs> I could, no, I could be wrong. But he's all aboard later. Like, yeah, yeah. I think in an issue we don't read. Eventually, when things settle down, there's just a funny opening scene, maybe of like fifty four. I'm not sure where everyone's just playing baseball in Wakanda, and it's like Wyatt Wingfoot's up to bat and like T'Challa's shortstop or something. Like, it's mm-hmm. very, very funny. Yeah. Anyway, um. So basically, Wakanda is this African nation that has been kind of hidden away from the rest of the world, and its leader T'Challa, aka the Black Panther, is there as it's kind of this like really interesting mix of futuristic technology and traditional like African culture. Yeah, right. Um, I think Wakanda. It's, it's... Go ahead. No, no. I, I think Wakanda is just this like fascinating addition to the Marvel universe that feels doesn't feel like anything we've seen no and i I think it really fits it fits probably the image that you that like fans might have of it today 
you know, mm-hmm. um, yeah. whether from the MCU or even modern comics. I mean, I think it comes out of the gate, like, honestly, pretty effectively saying, showing how it's got this sort of old, maybe a little more stereotypical vision of like an African tribe, but then simultaneously with all this technology and and being like a city of the future. It's a it's an interesting blend. And it's a little more, I think the reason Wakanda stands out so much is like, it's one of the best sort of sci-fi concepts that we see like in Marvel, honestly, like mm-hmm. as far as yeah. places we can go. I mean, we have Adelon so far, which is a little too isolated to be that interesting. But Wakanda oh, is just in, like- the Inhumans place. I was like, I don't know what that is. The Inhuman city. Adelon, the city for the Inhumans. That's right. Um, I mean, definitely we have like Asgard. But, but there's nothing special about the city itself except for the Inhumans, right? Like I couldn't tell you what Adelon architecture is like. It's- yeah. And, and the whole society has not been fleshed out yet. No, no. I think Wakanda comes in. Because, like, otherwise, we really just have, like, Manhattan. And we or have Asgard, Atlantis, certainly. Maybe. Atlantis, maybe a little. Um, I, I just think Wakanda, like, it's it's recognizable, but also sci-fi. And it, it feels grounded in a specific specific aesthetic, unlike, right. I think, Atlantis, um, Atlantis and Asgard and At- Atlanta? Atlanta? What did... That's in Georgia. Oh. Jesus, <laughs> all, all, what is it? I, it's a A's and T's and L's. The inhuman. Well, you said Atlantis. Oh, Adelon, 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 and Atlantis. Why would they name two cities just like that? Anyway, um, why would Jack Kirby name Atlantis that? Uh, they all look like Jack Kirby creations, right? right? Like, well, they're all fantasy too, right? And and they all kind of look like you could swap most of the buildings out in either, any of them, and it would mostly fit. Probably you wouldn't you wouldn't notice really, but. You couldn't do that with Wakanda. It feels very specific. The thing mm-hmm. is, like, I don't think... I, I could be wrong here, but I don't know if Jack Kirby, you know, was doing his due diligence and trying to, to really replicate, like, actual African culture stuff, or if he was just kind of doing this, you know, he, he cracked some National Geographics and drew what he saw and made it his own and, like, kind yeah. of... Because th- I think there's an interesting conversation there between, like... How much of this is good representation versus how much of this is appropriation? Um, and the thing is, I, I don't want to speak for you, but like, I don't feel fully equipped to really weigh down on that too heavily on on one side or the other. Like, I know Black mm-hmm. Panther is an important character for for a lot of African Americans, or probably just African people of African descent everywhere. Right, just seeing mm-hmm. like an African descended African descended character in mainstream superhero comics. Period. But the actual, like, details of how he does this and how he handles it. Do you have an insect? Spider. Mm, Hang on, this might be the radioactive one I've been looking for. (laughs) It's got a number 42 on its back. Okay, got it. Um, Yeah, I I know that, like, it's become an important character. But I, you know, I I don't feel equipped to to weigh in whether or not, like, how much he honors this actual culture and how much he's just kind of using it for the purpose of having this interesting sci-fi world and aesthetic. Yeah, no, it's definitely a weirder conversation that i'm prepared to have i mean i think i think that wakanda and stan in his dialogue through these issues they they lampoon but also leverage like the the sort of stock in trade jungle movie of the time because mm-hmm. they right. have ben Grimm throughout these issues he ben actually comes across as um as, as fairly He's sort of cynical in a way that is unbecoming to Ben, actually. Yeah. Uh, he's often funny when he's sarcastic, but in this case, he's just like 
kind of callous and cynical and right. he's joking yeah. a lot about you know oh i've seen this a hundred times in the latest jungle movie or, or you know they, they get that high-tech car and he's like how do you think these refugees from a tarzan flick ever got a hold yeah. of this technology it's very condescending yes um, yes it, in a way that is not probably not atypical of someone from the era but it is or even today, honestly, like let's let's not pretend like mm -hmm. perspectives of Africa have altered that much. Um, you know, I don't know. Look at like the Book of Mormon. I think does a does a pretty good job of like, or maybe a bad job is the example of showing like the stereotype of what one of these villages is like. But anyway, Ben, you know, he's he's sarcastic about it and cynical about it, but he's also like referencing. Here's what the image of the time is, and I think probably Kirby and Lee are pulling from that, but also they're at least aware that that's like their only exposure. I don't know that they'd actually been there, I guess. Because people are scolding Ben Grimm, right, for this, but he does it continually, and it, it feels a little bit like they wanted to have their cake and eat it too, right? Mm -hmm. Like they, they wanted to get those little jokes in, they wanted to rib about it, while also trying to treat this respectfully and like and actually build it up as not a joke like they they want wakanda to be a cool place with interesting right. characters and i think they achieved that but i still think they like it feels like he couldn't help himself but like make some cracks at you know the, the stereotypes expense yeah i think if you want to i think a lot can be celebrated here and i think like the really good motivations that definitely come out of fantastic 452 and 53 are one the creation of black panther is a huge deal. <laughs> let's not undersell that like creating T'Challa and having him be like basically we're going to see in this issue superior to the Fantastic Four you right. know like in, in fighting skills and prowess and intelligence is a huge deal for superhero comics it is still in 2019 when we record this you know like there is underrepresentation of of non-white characters right like that is an ongoing struggle in superhero comics so to do it in 1966 is great we're getting more like African descent descended characters uh, in Marvel, but then I think now we're starting to focus on. There's a lot of other underrepresentation that happens. I mean, our, the 21st Marvel movie we're just getting is the first female-led one, which is right. wild. 21 movies, and they are 50% of the population. I don't think I don't think it's crazy, but that that's a that's a bigger conversation. No, it's it's too long, but I but I think like that's we know this. We know it's a fabric, and we know it's part of the DNA of comics. Is they start out with a lot of you know, white male heroes, right? Like that's, that's thing, something that you, you have to come to terms with, even if you don't like it as a reality of how Marvel Comics gets its start. So I think, yes, it's to be celebrated, the creation of T'Challa. I think also it's to be, to be like, praise might be too, no, I think like to be praised, like making Wakanda not a joke and making it not a cliched, um, you know, like tribal village, adding mm -hmm. all the sci-fi, adding the intelligence, making it cool is a really good thing. I think it's what has yeah. made it last. And so I think it's why it's so cool in Black Panther that like they don't just have a secret place. They have like the most advanced technology in the world. That's no small thing. So I think everything yeah. you're saying, I'm sure there's some really good analysis that, that I'm not capable of providing on like how fair or, or good is this for the time in terms mm -hmm. of like appropriation versus authenticity. Um, but I think broadly speaking, these are both really good creations and additions to the Marvel Universe. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, I definitely agree. And I, I think it's kind of interesting that they sidestep dealing with, because, I mean, we're in the middle of the civil rights era. They kind of sidestep dealing with any kind of, like, American civil rights around, like, African-Americans by, by having him be African-descended. And I wonder how much of the that's why this is in this setting rather than 
you know, the Falcon coming in as an African-American. And I, I love that the Black Panther movie does a good job of, like, threading that needle of trying to link in the concerns of, like, African-Americans with a broader overview of African history. Yeah, and just, like, while we're on the more, like, society at large bent, I mean, the the Black Panther Party <laughs> actually mm-hmm. gets its start this same year, yeah. 1966. Now, I'm going off of memory, so I could... I could be off here, but I don't think Stan and Jack were referencing that with the creation of Black no, Panther. No, 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 they weren't. I, I looked that up. It, it was the other way around. They they wrote Black Panther, and then like Black Panther, the the Black Panther group came into I don't know public public notice yeah. shortly after this. So, and then they changed yeah. and then they changed the name. So Black Panther gets renamed. Oh, that's right. They try to call him like the Black Leopard for a minute, something like that. Something that like just doesn't work. It's so corny, and it doesn't work at all. Oh, I forgot about that. Okay, yeah. good point. Um, so anyway, the, the rest of the story is basically they show up in Wakanda, and Wakanda's this, like we said, super high-tech place that, that's really cool because some of it just looks like a kind of a traditional African... I mean, that that's kind of a reductionist statement anyway, like an African tribe, which, like, there, Africa has so many different countries, and I'm just calling it African. But it looks like kind of a, a small village, but then really they talk about how, you know, the, the village is hidden beneath the trees. There's this, like, projection through the trees that keeps it hidden. All the vines are actually, like, electrical wires with, uh, you know, like, data passing through them. There's circuitry, like, in all the different trees and vines. Like, everything around them is actually technological while still staying grounded in their, their culture. Um, so basically T'Challa has... has they show up and the Black Panther starts fighting them, the, the Fantastic Four and Wyatt Wingfoot. And he basically like methodically one at a time takes them down. Like he studied them, he's re- researched them, he's come up with a plan to take them all down. And he does pretty handily, <laughs> except he didn't count on everyone's favorite quarterback, Wyatt Wingfoot, coming in and, uh, and saving the day. And some, I don't even remember, but Wyatt Wingfoot somehow like, you know, is a foil to his plans, like releases the Fantastic Four. He sabotages the... Um... The Wakandan, like, it's like the broadcast booth. So, like, Black yeah. Panther's got his his Wakandan operatives, you know, managing some of his traps or whatever that he set up for the Fantastic Four. And Wyatt sort of stealthily sneaks in there and just mm-hmm. rubs them enough right. that then the Fantastic Four are able to escape the Black Panther, who, again, like, in his origin— so uh, this is something that we may have talked about offline, but, like, he comes in as a potential villain— you know, so if you think about how characters are introduced in Fantastic Four. You said that he gets the Doctor Doom treatment. The Doctor Doom, right. Like, he's just kind of setting up traps like he's going to take down the Fantastic Four sort of prove his power. He's also very, like, Craven the Hunter-ish here mm-hmm. um, because he's literally hunting the Fantastic Four. Like, he brings them into an environment and then hunts them. And again, like, if you think about the way this mag operates, a lot of times it's like, who's the new villain of the week or who's the new villain of the month right. in this case? And Black Panther takes on that vibe but then once the Fantastic Four are finally released and sort of come out of it Black Panther then totally turns a corner and says like oh cool I just wanted to test you guys (laughs) see he wanted to test himself test himself because okay so it's like revealed that he's worried that uh Ulysses Claw his like arch nemesis is is gonna show up to try to Mm -hmm. invade Wakanda and steal some vibranium which we'll get to in a second and he's just like I need to make sure I was ready so uh Mm -hmm. I I invited some people who I thought would be like good sparring practice, and training dummies. Yeah, they're very, they're very <laughs> exactly. They're very forgiving of this. Like basically having been brought halfway around the world to get the snot beat out of them. Yeah, <laughs> for somebody else's you know training regimen. 
It's a weird way to make friends, but it but, does seem to you work. Know, you know what's not a weird way to make friends is how Fantastic Four 53 opens up. Let the dance of friendship begin, says T'Challa, <laughs> which, which is a Heck great, yeah. there's a really good splash page. Yeah. And yeah, and we get this this fun kind of look at the culture outside of Black Panther just fighting them. And Black Panther then goes in and tells his whole story that Wakanda is sitting on this huge deposit of vibranium and he has this big metal block of or stone block of vibranium that's like the size of a coffee table and he says it's worth like 20 million dollars or something <laughs> and it's very funny the fantastic four are getting a tour of his his place and they're like how how could you afford all this and he's says i'm one of the richest men in the world and to punctuate it he pulls out his gold golden zippo and lights up a cigarette <laughs> which is one of my favorite details of Black Panther's just walking around kind of pontificating about how, you know, technologically advanced in the entire time he's just puffing away on a, a Marlboro. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. Just, just because it's like, ooh, it's classy. But yeah, vibranium Back is the special Back when smoking metal. was cool. Yeah. Well, I mean, just ubiquitous. It's kind of surprising more people in the Marvel universe aren't smoking. Vibranium is this metal that absorbs all vibrations and Reed immediately says something along the lines of, Oh, this will be useful because it can absorb vibrations from missiles, making sure that they don't break apart in the air or that they're more accurate or whatever. Like, he, he immediately finds some use for it or, you know, identifies. Like Reed's thinking about missiles more than we would I, expect. I know. He immediately goes to, like, the war, war uses for it. But apparently, yeah. vibranium is just useful for lots of different things. And we'll see it. It kind of becomes, like, the element of choice for a lot of stuff in uh, yeah. the Marvel Universe. That in. What's the other? Adamantium. Adamantium. So he tells the story about Ulysses Claw is this kind of white white colonizer who came he's in. He's not kind and, of white. He's, re- he's real white. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, he's a white kind, yeah, colonizer who, <laughs> who comes in and basically tries to steal the vibranium from Wakanda when T'Challa was a kid, killed T'Challa's father, T'Chaka, and then was driven off by T'Challa when... T'Challa grabbed like his weaponry and used it against him. Uh, I think you mean when Kid T'Challa grabbed the biggest Jack Kirby gun in existence, <laughs> the, a la Cable in the '90s, yes. and then fired away. Yeah, yeah, the, the sound blaster. Mm-hmm. My favorite MS DOS sound card from 1988. <laughs> yeah, so he uses that uh, to to drive off Claw. But now, however many years, twenty years later, Claw's coming back for vibranium, and he needs the Fantastic Four's help. The rest of this issue is Claw basically is the master of sound. Um, he's not that interesting, but his name is very cool. <laughs> Ulysses Claw is like such a cool name. It's a great uh, name. Um, he's a character <clears throat> who's had like interesting developments through Marvel history, but he mm-hmm. starts out definitely as the the villainous colonizer. I think yeah. is his most notorious role. I I like the idea. Speaking of notorious, of the master of sound hitting the DJ tables. I, I think that's why oh, yeah. the idea of his SoundCloud mixtape and Black, Ta- Black Panther resonated so, so successfully with me. Um, oh, is that, I? you know, I haven't seen that movie since I read these. So like, is that is that a joke in there? Does he make that? I think it's him. I've, I could be wrong, but I think he says like, I've got a mixtape on SoundCloud. I feel like that happens. Maybe it's just in my head. Quite the entourage. You got a mixtape coming out? Oh yeah, yeah, actually there is one. Yeah, I'll send you the SoundCloud link if you like. Hey, Dave, can you get the link to Please, the Please, don't make me listen to your music. I just meant you got a lot of people with you. He definitely likes music. There's there's a weird moment in that where, like, when they're on the run, he wants to, to put on some music, like, during the chase scene. He, like, yeah. makes his henchmen turn on the radio to listen yeah. to some hip-hop, which I think is, like, kind of interesting and ironic, you know? that he's It's pretty still, cool like... that his henchman has the Black Panther soundtrack and a little Kendrick <laughs> queued up as well. That's right. a nice touch. Yeah, that that is, like... 
that's such a good detail of that movie. You know, that kind of such like, a good soundtrack. Well, I mean, the fact that he's clearly, you know, like this guy who's trying to, to come in and rob Wakanda, but he's still just like can't help but want to, to still take on like black culture. Right. He's still like really into black culture, even mm. if he's, you know, it, I mean, you, you see that a lot of stuff. That's um, an interesting point, yeah. Anyway, so the rest of this issue, he's basically creating these giant red sound animals, which are pretty cool visually. So just like an enormous gorilla or an elephant that is made out of sound and they're right. having a hard time fighting it because it absorbs their blows, etc. Um, and it, it boils down to basically a, a one-on-one fight of Ulysses Claw versus Black Panther. <laughs> and I like that Claw is like, oh, you'll never defeat me. I'm, I'm unstoppable with my sound blaster. And <laughs> T'Challa just like flips a switch on his soundboard and is like i know exactly which flip to switch i'm a scientist and then the switch whole thing flip. explodes yeah did oh we did it again <laughs> did i say flip to switch i know exactly which flip to switch was did what i say you that? said yeah it's, it's our recurring i think it's our biggest recurring slip of the tongue yeah someone pointed out in the slack that. that both of us have have said that and i i didn't know what they were talking about i was yeah. like I, I've never been aware of me saying that. Okay. Yeah. I'll, I'll do I, do I get to like... reference Drake again? Have I already done that this podcast? <laughs> Jeez. You I just flipped a switch. Him the... a lot. Okay. All right. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He switches. He switches flip, the flip. flip. He flips the switch. <laughs> and, uh, and uh, oh my God. I'm, I'm lost now. Um, <laughs> but I, I like that, that moment of, you know, it's not just like Black Panther is good at punching. He, he outsmarts him. He uses an intelligence, and Ulysses Claw like underestimates him because of that. Yeah, so I think I think that's an important development. Uh, and then they go back. He says like, "Well, I've defeated Claw. I guess I'm done being Black Panther." And the Fantastic Four are like, "No, wait. You should fight super villains forever. Like, <laughs> yeah, just uh, use great. your use your power for for good." Um, and this has a pretty cool end shot of something we haven't really seen in Marvel comics, which it cuts back to the ruins of Ulysses Claw's. Ulysses S. Claw's base, where he is like, he's basically on his last legs, like underneath all this rubble. And he's like, there's enough charge in my machinery to turn one last thing into sound. And he crawls into his own machine. And it's like a cliffhanger for the villain returning, which yeah. we never see. Like, all these Marvel comics so far have shown the cliffhanger for the next villain coming in, maybe. Like, what's the next threat? But this is right. like, he's going to come back, I don't know, a year later? I don't know how long it is. It's a while till he comes back. Um, yeah, in Fantastic no, it's, it's a nice setup. Because yeah, the other thing we see is villains just they disappear. Like yes. Doctor Doom does this every at the end, and then <laughs> then they have to explain his re-entrance in the next right. issue. Yeah, you know. Um, but yeah, Claw's actually like setting the stage for him coming back as as like living sound, which is kind of yeah. cool. Yeah, I mean, I don't care about sound as a villain's thing, but like that that's the least interesting thing about this whole thing <laughs> is. Him using sound. Yeah, I kind of, I kind of don't love Claw as as the Black Panther arch nemesis necessarily. Um, but he's he makes a lot of sense. It, it, mm-hmm. I don't know. I feel like this story gets retold a lot, and it's one of the things I liked so much about the MCU version was it retold it in such an interesting way. You know, that yeah. sort of changed like Claw as a really big focal point. I think he works better as that sort of supporting villain as opposed right. to the main bad guy. Yeah. Um. But yeah, he's, it, when I think about Claw, like, I can think of like two stories where he's really effective and he's a pretty, he's a pretty minor, like he's not, he's just not as compelling as, um, I don't know, like some of the big, like a Doctor Doom or something. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I don't know. Master of Sound is just not that interesting. Because honestly, you could replace it with like air. 
like he's just good at manipulating the air or change sound for light waves and just draw it differently and it's literally the same thing he's just good at like i mean he, he has technology that lets him make like you know the force kind of just like well and one thing about that is it's really tough to visualize in in right. the comics medium <laughs> yeah. is if your whole deal is sound in a soundless medium so like, they just draw things like yeah oh, it's a giant elephant made out of sound and it's like well it could just be made out of air or it could be made out of lightning or it could be made mm-hmm. out of energy waves and it it's, it just it kind of feels like nothing you know it's not specific in any way yeah i think one thing i one thing i'm really obsessed with is like cool lettering sound effects and like the ways that mm-hmm. those can sort of be integrated into panel design um i think claw is ripe for that like in his appearances where i feel like the sound effects should be like having weight and should be felt by the characters when he appears you know as mm-hmm. opposed to just in the background i think is maybe the way to visually show that like his his blasts are of sound you know like they should be smooshing up against the panther yeah like the actual him. word bubbles are yeah like, <laughs> are pressing up against them that'd be fun yeah, yeah totally but but otherwise he's a bit of a challenge but all in all two really good issues again like fantastic fours on and this is an insane hot streak that they're on right here yeah. you know you go from coming galactus to this man this monster to introing black panther just like and that's the come down you know yeah. <laughs> it's like... i actually i i like this a lot more than the coming of galactus like this man this 51 mm-hmm. through 53 were my favorite stretch of these like way more than the galactus stuff because i think this is more successful just like right on its face yeah yeah no these are these are good comics and like there's a reason they haven't changed too much of this um since the time is like this is this is the black panther origin this is the wakanda origin and this is like more or less what you need to know about vibranium it's all it's all here and so black panther is not going to like immediately join up the Marvel Universe. He's going to come in eventually into the Avengers, which we'll see. Um, but he also is going to be in his own series sometime in the 70s, I think, called Jungle Action, the unfortunately right. named Jungle Action. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but very good. But yeah, very, so very there, good. It's considered like one of the first graphic novels, right? This run of Jungle Action called Rage of the Panther. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, I love that story. That, that was not in my Marvelous year the first time because it was not on Marvel Unlimited. So it's not on the list. But I'm pretty sure we're gonna add it, right? Like it's, it's like an we all-time better. great, isn't we it? Better. I I really want to read it. Yeah, um, let's just commit to doing it because I want to read it. Like I'm gonna I'm gonna do that right after yeah. we're done here, actually. Okay, yeah, that's fine. Because I, I looked it up. It's in it's in Marvel Unlimited now, but it wasn't when you first made the list. Sweet, cool, cool. So that was the first half of 1966. Part two of 1966 will be coming out on April 1st. Uh, we may have to include an April Fool's gag somewhere in there, Zach. We'll talk about that. Uh, there will be no episode coming out. Oh. On it. We're not going to cover the second half of 1966. Classic. <laughs> nice. And then uh, the listener response episode will be on April 8th, 2019. If you want to get your feedback in for thoughts, questions, concerns to be covered on the uh, variant cover listener response episode, you can do that by end of day, Tuesday april 2nd Mm -hmm. Uh, and again you can get those into my marvelous year at gmail.com yes please you can find us on instagram twitter facebook uh, all the social medias if you support us on patreon we've got a bunch of interesting things there i sent out a weekly newsletter um i randomly pick some people to choose their favorite panels of the year that i post on the slack and the instagram um access to the slack channel is uh is really where the community is happening here and uh, I put out the Extra Issues newsletter covering issues that uh, we didn't get to cover and uh, all kinds of interesting character introductions. 
this year for 1966's extra issues, I'm talking about uh, the the issue where Fury, Nick, we find out how Nick Fury lost his eye. Uh, the introduction of the Rhino uh, of Mary Jane Watson, an issue where the Golden Age Human Torch fights the Silver Age Human Torch, uh, and the intro of Batrock, which I've never read but I've heard <laughs> is a pretty good supervillain. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's all kinds of interesting stuff happening over there. So check that out on Patreon. All right, our poll for 1966 is the worst Stan Lee tropes. Again, patrons can vote on this over on patreon.com slash year. And we did the best Stan Lee tropes last year. This year we're going to get into the worst. Yeah. And our options are overwritten prose, nonsense science, casual sexism, slash sad sack male protagonist, Reliance on Deus Ex Machinas and recycled plot points. So, yes, even I will admit Stan the Man had flaws, and you can head over to Patreon and vote on them, and we, Zach and I, will talk about them in our 1966 listener response episode. Yeah. For future reading lists, you can go to mymarvelthisyear.com. It will take you to the pages on Comic Book Herald, which is a site I run, where you can find all reading lists for all years. Again, for 1966 Part 2, just navigate to the 60s. Uh, you can also get reading lists over on Patreon, or if you sign up for the Comic Book Herald email club, we will send those out every single week. So uh, you can find all these episodes or all these issues on Marvel Unlimited. It's the recommended way to read uh, all these Marvel comics. Music for My Marvelous Year is by Disasterpiece. This is a very cool artist that I recommend checking out if you like our theme song. Did you get to check out that Rise of the Interstellar Obsidian? I listened to it all day after you recommended it, and it's a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah, it's awesome. I had, yeah, cool. I had it on while I was doing work. Cool. Thank you for listening, everybody, and we will see you next year. See you next year. Uh-huh.